They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. But John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him. He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all May your supreme glory be our chief concern, O Lord, our God. Amen. Hello, thank you so much for reading for us. I'm going to begin my message this morning in the same way I began last Sunday. I began last Sunday by drawing your attention to the Lord's table here next to me. I did that because I don't want us to see this table as the new addition to the things we do when we gather together for public worship. But rather, I want us to see this table as central to everything we do when we gather together for worship. Why do I say that? Because the Lord's table brings us face to face with Jesus. Last Sunday I said the Lord's table is an ongoing visible expression of our fellowship with Jesus. Later on during the service, I'm going to invite you to come around the Lord's table symbolically. And you will all reach out to these little elements you have in front of you. And you will gently make your way looking for that tiny little bread or wafer. It's there, even if it might not seem to be there. And when you get to it, you will take it out and gently make your way again to the juice. And you will hold both elements. And together we will eat and drink with thanksgiving. You know what you would have done when you finished that? You would have said, I belong to Jesus. When you have drank and ate that little element, no matter how much, how it tastes like, I've heard a number of flavors this week. Whatever the taste, whatever the, the flavor, what you have declared, I belong to Jesus. You see, when we break bread together, we are reminded of Jesus, who is the bread of life. When we break bread together, we are reminded of Jesus, who is the bread from heaven. And you know what does that mean for you and I? It means Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient for life and living. Now, I don't want to assume that that is true for you as well. I wonder if you can say that with clear is Jesus enough for you. 
You see, this time that we've just been through has actually exposed us to actually think about that. Is Jesus really enough for me? So we're reminded of Jesus when we come to the Lord's table. When we come around this table, this table brings us to the cross of Christ. Yes, that's the context in which the Lord's table was instituted. It was the night before Jesus was crucified. And as he was making his way to the cross, he wanted to spend time with his disciples. And he invited them in this private room where he had these significant conversations with them. And one of the things he spoke to them about in extent was this table. So on the cross, Jesus demonstrated everything he spoke to his disciples about on the table. Because on the table he said, this bread is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood poured out for you. Eat and drink with thanksgiving. What happened on the cross? His body was pierced and the blood came out gushing from his side. This table leads us to Jesus. This table leads us to the cross. This table leads us to worship. By worship, I mean to live our lives in awe of God. To live our lives in awareness of God's bigness. To live our lives in awareness of our need for his grace. Nobody has ever seen God and not bow his face down. That's what worship is. So with that introduction, we're ready to come to our passage. As we come to it, we recognize it immediately. That's, this is not a new territory for us. We have been here before. This story is a continuation of what we spoke about last Sunday. Jesus and John, they are still the focus of our story this morning. The difference, however, is that last Sunday we saw John, this great forerunner of our Lord, not showing greatness and not showing confidence, but instead showing weakness, doubt, and uncertainty. You ask, what happened? How can a great man like John be in that space, be so low as to be in that place? Well, John was feeling disappointed with Jesus. Yes, John, feeling disappointed by the Lord himself. You see, because he was expecting judgment to come immediately when Jesus comes. But Jesus comes and he offers grace and mercy. As if that's not enough, he becomes friends with tax collectors and sinners. This is the group of people upon whom John had pronounced judgment. He said to them, you are like trees that bears no fruit. Jesus is coming with an axe to chop you down. I don't know if that brings a smile to anyone. He said to them, you are like chaff. Jesus is coming to burn you with an unquenchable fire. I'm looking for my water. I don't know where I have left them. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ele. Sorry, sorry, hi. <laughs> Forgive me.
And so John is perplexed by this. We are told that he asked two of his disciples to go and see Jesus, to see the Lord, and ask him, did I get it wrong? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? That's the question John sent his disciples to Jesus. Are you God's promised king, or should we look further afield? The two disciples, they go to Jesus, they ask the question, Jesus gives them the answer, and we said the answer takes us right to the heart of the gospel. But as they leave, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds about John the Baptist. That's where we are this morning. That's how Carol began to read for us. As the messengers are on their way, Jesus begins to speak to them. You see, Jesus doesn't want the crowds to draw a wrong conclusion about John. Jesus here is setting the record straight on John. Here we find the Lord Jesus himself rescuing John's reputation. Not for John's sake, but for gospel's sake. Why? You see, because Jesus knows that John is crucial to people's understanding of God's purposes. If John had come as a forerunner for Jesus, and Jesus comes and yet people don't take John serious, it means they may not take the one who, who he went ahead for serious. So Jesus is rescuing John's reputation here. For gospel's sake. He is demonstrating something of the care that he takes on John's reputation. This is his mark of love and respect that he bothers to say the kind things that he says in this passage. He gives some remarkable words of praise and commendation to John. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. This is Jesus' words. Jesus is not so generous like that. He doesn't just throw praises everywhere. If you read the Gospels, you'll find Jesus rebuking. This is one of the unique moments in the Gospels. John is the greatest. The passage before us, this morning as we consider it, I want to say to you, it is a comfort to all of us. It is a comfort to those of you who find themselves struggling with God's mercy. It is a, a comfort to those of you who are struggling to see God coming through for them. They are like John asking themselves, if you are the one, why am I here? Why am I in prison, God? If God is he who says he is, why? Da, 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 da. That's a big theological question. So the passage before us is a comfort to all of us this morning. Now, Jesus gives these commendation in the shape of three questions. Verses 24, 25, and 26. They begin in the same words. What did you go out in the wilderness, into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
he leaves it. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. He leaves it. Third question. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. He answers it. Yes. So these three questions, they require an immediate answer. And the, the answer to the first two is no. John was not a reed shaken by the wind. John was not a man who dressed up in fine clothes. So those three questions, they give us our outline this morning. We're not going to look in all three of them. We're going to look in two of them, the first and the last. And the, and the middle one will weave it through the message. So that's my outline. A swaying weed, a great prophet, but before you end the passage, you see the divide. A divide. So let's begin. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? At first, this question seems a bit odd. You ask yourself, what is the Lord talking about here? But when you carefully look at it, you see that Jesus is talking about John and his powerful preaching ministry. And it's a telling picture of John's preaching ministry. John was not like our modern day celebrity preachers. He did not dress up in shiny suits and pointy shoes. Jesus says, no, on the contrary, that kind of comfort and luxury belongs to the royal courts. And the closest John ever got to the royal court, it was in the royal prison. John is different to anything we know today. Secondly, John did not have a city center pulpit. If you wanted to hear John preaching, you did not go to the temple next door. You walked all the way to the wilderness. That's where John's pulpit was. John was a prophet crying from the wilderness, not from the temple. And you know what happened when you finally got there in the wilderness? You know what you saw? It was not a reed shaken by the wind. It was a stern preacher of judgment. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. That was John not speaking to the trees, speaking to the crowds. Who have come in repentance and asked him, will you please baptize us? He described them as brood of vipers. He wouldn't have made it in our time. Both in the church and outside the church. I said last Sunday, if you want to test the truth of that word, go to the crowds when they toy toy, stand on the, on the top hill and say, you brood of vipers! And see what will happen. They will come hugging you. Yet we are told, people from all the city of Jerusalem and the countryside, they flocked to hear this preacher. So John was not a, a reed shaken by the wind. He was a man of stubborn convictions. He was a man of courage to stand for his convictions. Those are two things. Sometimes we have people who are opinionated 
But when the waves come, they can't stand for what they, they, they seem to believe in. John did not trim his message to suit his hearers. We're good at that today. John was not someone who shaped what he has to say to fit the culture. One of the commentators says John was not a weather, a weather vane. I had to look it up. And I saw what the weather vane does. Imagine having a preacher who is a weather vane. And there's lots of them. So the question is, therefore, what was it about this man that made people to walk all the way to leave their comfort? They went all the way to hear the truth of the word of God. You see, if Jesus is saying, what did you go out to see? He is suggesting that elsewhere in Jerusalem, there are preachers. But they are not like John. They are not preaching the word of God. You see, John, for all his blunt speaking, it seems to me he has touched the cord in many hearts here. He has spoken of another world that was drawing near. He has spoken of how God was going to visit his people. John had spoken about how the end of the age was upon them. And you can see that his approach fitted his message. We're going to be more on this first point. Let me say that up front. We're not going to give equal time to all three points. In fact, I did this outline to give you what the passage has to offer. I'm not promising that I'll be able to dedicate equal time to all three points. The first point has so much urgence for us today. So, we've been in John's world. We've seen what happened in John's world. Now we want to bring John in our world. In other words, we want to apply the message of John to us. And I've named this first point as Jesus' portrait of John's preaching ministry. He tells us that his preaching ministry was powerful and authoritative. Powerful in our time means to be loud and be passionate. But powerful in John's time is that he spoke the message of repentance. And people came in numbers and responded to that message. Now, studying this portrait of Jesus, of John's preaching ministry, two things happened to me, personally and corporately. I felt rebuked by John. And I felt challenged by John. John's preaching ministry is a rebuke to us on many levels. It is a rebuke to our pulpit ministry. It is a rebuke to our shallow and spineless Christianity. It is a challenge to us as well. We live in a multi-faith culture. Therefore, to speak of Jesus' uniqueness over the other faiths, 
You know what you've done? You've offended the people of other faith. In the context of Africa alone, or South Africa, let me put it that way, there is a new movement that is growing and is gaining momentum among university and middle class and celebrity, black celebrities, which speaks of going back to your roots. And you see the hashtag Sangoma is on the bars. When we grew up, that was something completely different. It was seen on another light. But now because of the young university students who are seeing this as cool and modern, it's now gaining a new energy and a new tag to it. So from time to time you hear a big weighty celebrity has become a Sangoma. What does that do to the culture? It says to the culture of our young people, there's nothing wrong with this. If this cool guy that we follow, that sets the trend, can associate himself with it, then it means it's progressive and it's cool. That's what we deal with. So when, again, stats tells us that when children leave home to university, and I don't want even to tell you the, the stats, the, what, the percentage, but it's a huge percentage that says they may leave the faith of their parents. How then are we going to speak the word of God to this generation? Are we going to be like a reed shaken by the wind? I'm afraid to say yes. We are. We are. The signs are showing already. This was brought to me at home last Sunday before a service started. I noticed somebody that I haven't seen and I went and met and I went and greeted him. Um, um, I don't see him here today. Um, Clive. Um, he's new in the city, so he's exploring our church. He's been coming here for two Sundays. And as we were talking, he said to me, you see, you must be discerning these days about what kind of church you go to. He's right. But he didn't get, stop there. He said, you see, I'm not looking for a church where the pastor speaks about himself. Does he suggesting that there are churches where the pastor are talking about themselves? Yes. So John's preaching ministry is a rebuke to our pulpit ministry today. Because we have changed it to center around personalities. This is not new. It happened in John's time. That's why people went all the way to the wilderness to hear the word of God, because in the temple elsewhere, there were reeds shaken by the wind behind the pulpit. People preached, but the voice of God was, they did not hear the voice of God. People preached, but the word of God was not the central attention not new. One of the champions of expository preaching in our time, Steve Lawson, wrote a book a couple of years ago, long ago, was not even into it until recently, called Famine in the Land. I had the book and I pulled it out when I was preparing this message. And in the book, Steve Lawson is lamenting 
the poverty of the word of God in the church. He says, we have replaced substance with style. It's not about the substance, the content, but it's about style. That's entertainment. Again, we may seem to have people coming to reputable churches, and I'm nervous to use that word, but you know what it means. But even though they come to these reputable churches, they lack biblical foundation for themselves. They live on sound bites, the kerchief phrase of the day. That's what they live on. Not on the true and solid word of God. As a result, what happened? When the storms hit, they get wiped away. And I'm sure you notice I said when the storms. Because the storms will come. I know that's not something you like to hear from a pastor preaching. But I will be failing my pastoral duties to say, no, as a Christian, you are exempt from the storms of life. You are not. Dawn Carson began a couple of, of lectures on suffering by, by saying something that you don't do when you begin any talk. If you live long enough, you will suffer. That's how he begins. Just live long enough. And he says, if you don't live long enough, it means you will grieve other people. That's not popular. We want to know things that will. So, let's, let's, let me ask you a couple of questions as we apply this. I'm drawing to conclusion. So, what do you go out to hear and see in the church with your family every Sunday morning? What do you go out to see and hear? Is it because the church is near and convenient that you go out, even though there is a read Shaken by the wind behind the pulpit. What do you go out to see? I've got two couple of practical suggestions. This is what I, we promise to offer you when you go out to this church. One, we promise to offer you a very high view of pulpit ministry. We believe that the Bible is the word of God. And therefore, it has authority over us. And we have no liberty to alter it to suit our agenda. If we alter the word of God to suit our agenda, we failed to be true and to be good stewards of the word of God. So as a church, we have a high view of pulpit. We want to be true to the Bible as the authors have written it. But I'll be arrogant to say we get it right all the time. I think maybe it's not bad not to get it right all the time because it makes us to pursue the best standards anyway. But one thing you must know, we're committed to the high view of the Word of God. The second thing that we promise to offer you is life groups is growing deeper with other believers. 
How do we grow deeper with other believers? We grow deeper in fellowship and in relationships. We don't achieve that level of relationship on a Sunday gathering. It's too big. We are in a rush. But when there is four or three of us around the Word of God, we are better at growing. Life groups. That's community. That's one of the devastating losses we have experienced during lockdown. The loss of community. The African languages have proverbs that express the fact that you are never alone if you are, Af- if you are an African child. You are never alone. There is always other people around you. The other day I was at school um, ready to, waiting to pick up my daughter. Nkutle was sitting alone somewhere there. And I'm keeping an eye on him. Because he's bored to sit with me. And when he was sitting alone, somebody stood up and said to him, with concerned tone and body language, why are you sitting here alone? Where are your parents? And then Nkutle pointed at me. And then she turned. One of our young people from school, she recognized him from Sunday school. You're never alone. You're part of the community. The second, the third thing we are gonna, we off, we promise to offer you, is quality, high quality children's ministry. We don't see us ourselves in the children's ministry as those who are taking the responsibility of the parents away from them. But rather, we see ourselves as partners, and our job is to equip the parents in our partnership in how to disciple their children. Fourthly, we promise to offer you an exciting and energetic youth ministry. And you will be glad to know that I'm not the youth leader because I can't promise you exciting and energetic. I'm boring. But we've got the best man in the position, Thebo, who's got an energy that I don't know where he gets. And he gets to meet with me, the exciting energy with a boring guy, every week. And we talk about what's happening there in the youth ministry. You see, because Thibault cannot do it alone, he needs us to walk alongside him. And one of the things that we talk about is, when last did you speak to our university students? And one of the things I want to encourage all of us when we see our university students come back to church on Sunday, we must run to them. Because we recognize the battlefield they are facing with out there. For them to stay Christians is huge. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. I don't think Jesus is saying here, John was more powerful than anyone. But he's talking about the position John holds in history. John is the end of the line. Because all the prophets had fingers pointing forward, saying there is one who's coming. Malachi, the, 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 the very last Old Testament pr- prophet, has got a longest finger than, them all of, than all of them. 
400 years pointing to the one's coming. That was John. John arrives on the scene, Jesus, in our text. You know what he says? This is he about whom it was written. John, 400 years later. And then you follow the hand of John. You know who you bump to? You bump on Messiah himself. John had an incredible privilege of pointing to the one and see him. He's the only man in prophets who said, here is the man who take away the sin of the world. John pointed you to the kingdom. You can be in it. John had outlined the shadow. You and I can start enjoying the substance. John was a servant. You and I can be sons and daughters. John spoke of the king. You and I can know the king. That's John. Who did you go out to see? Not a reed shaken by the wind. A prophet. John came in this world with a clear sense of vision and he lived his life with sense of urgency. And that leads us straight to this table. You see, because this table makes you and I homesick. And if we are homesick, we will know that this world is not our home. And therefore, we will be true to the task God has called us to do. 